Hello, everybody, and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. Today on the show, I welcome Adam McDonald, licensed clinical social worker, to talk about his specialty, attachment and trauma. episode three of next quest podcast today i'm featuring adam mcdonald lcsw on attachment and trauma welcome adam thank you so much noah i'm really excited to be here with you today i'm excited to have you so i've got a bunch of questions for you um and uh let's rock this thing sounds good hit me so what are your credentials and experience so um at Like Noah said, uh, my name is Adam McDonald. I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I've been a social worker for four years now. I've loved every minute of it. Um, I've loved some minutes more than others, but that doesn't mean I haven't loved every minute of it. (laughs) Um, I've worked in a lot of different settings as a social worker. I've worked in a state psychiatric hospital, uh, psychiatric uh, emergency room, um, uh, and uh, in, in a research capacity as well. Um, but for the last three, three years, I've been doing um, and, and really focusing on being a psychotherapist. Well, that's exciting. It sounds like a lot of different variety of experience there. <laughs> yes. Some, some might say I, I get, I, I, I might feel bored um, quickly, but um, I like to think that I, I'm just a diverse man. Um. <laughs> oh, I totally feel the same way. I've worked on crisis teams, IOPs, PHPs, you name it. Um, yeah, getting all that experience, it informs all of the other work that you do, too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? And if not, why not? It's, it's really curious that this is happening right now. Uh, <laughs> In, in the grand scheme of, um, of my career that this podcast is happening because we're in a pandemic and insurance companies are trying to adopt uh, and trying to adapt um, to offering telehealth as, as an important um, covered uh, in insurance um, service. 
The problem that I've been having recently is that there's been no communication from the insurance company that I've been credentialed with. Um, I, I, I don't get a lot, I don't get any information about the future of telehealth being covered. And I don't anticipate being able to sit in a room with someone uh, and talk for an hour um, and to have 20 to 30 of those, <laughs> those hours in one room anytime soon. So right now, I'm not accepting any new insurance clients. Okay. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, awesome. I know insurance has been a little tricky throughout this process of the pandemic. Um, do you offer sliding scale? Absolutely. Um, the, um, one, of the, one of the really important things of being a social worker is providing some service on some level um, without uh, a huge financial gain. And a sliding scale is, is important to facilitate that, to, to give space for those who don't have the resources um, uh, to be able to access psychotherapy. Um, and, and so I do have a sliding scale. Um, I, with insurance, uh, typically you're, you're not allowed to go underneath that contracted rate that you have with your insurance um, with that sliding scale. So it, 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 my sliding scale can't go below that. Um, Gotcha. And, yeah, yeah. What about weekend and evening appointments? Oh, like I said, Noah, this is, it's so interesting that we're having this uh, <laughs> recording right now <laughs> because uh, just in the last month, I have changed my schedule completely to not having any evening appointments. Um, I, I had weekend appointments earlier this year due to uh, my office space and, and what I had available to me. Um, but after um, uh, lockdown, switched to only weekdays and now only during the day appointments. It's, it's, a, it's a big transition, but it's an important one for myself and for my clients. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge transition. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Well, I, I think in middle school, my first career, <laughs> I had planned it all out to be an accountant. Um, okay. <laughs> possibly the furthest thing from what I do today. Um, <laughs> um, an accountant. How many kids want to be an accountant? I'm just <laughs> no idea, Noah. But uh, I, apparently, I was excited about math and and I wanted to have things add up and balance well. I wonder if that said anything about my uh, my psyche or <laughs> back. <then. laughs> Yeah, but, but then I went, I went to school, um, uh, I went to the University of Michigan and studied neuroscience, loved it, wanted to really make a career out of it um, until I, I joined um, this research project. Um, I was working with veterans and active duty service people um, and calling them and going over these really big questionnaires over uh, mental health things. And the purpose of the study was to, it, and I was, I was just the tech at that point. So I was, I was just doing the calling and doing the uh, survey completion. Um, and whenever we had a distressed respondent, meaning someone that was just having a difficult time 
answering these questions or was starting to say things like they wanted to hurt themselves or others, we would have to reach out to a clinical social worker that was on the team. Um, and it was, it was really frustrating um, because of the protocol of the study, my only responses to those, to those uh, folks who were in distress was, thank you for your answer. Um, yeah. that, 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 that was the only thing that I could say to them without um, being, uh, without affecting the study. And, and so I would talk with these clinical social workers and, and we would discuss uh, the thing or, or the call and, and process it together. And I found myself thinking, holy crap, I want to do that. <laughs> that's, that sounds cool. Yeah. So that's really what drew me to, to being interested in social work. Um, and I had no idea. But yeah, it was after that that I, I really started um, uh, jumping into the field, so to say. Awesome. That sounds like a really cool uh, program that you're working with or study. It was, yeah, it was great. It was huge. It, it was the STAR study, um, the study to assess risk and resilience in service members. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really good time. Um, yeah. Would you say that's also what drew you to being a therapist? You know, it, it definitely drew me to doing people-centered work. Um, as when I was studying neuroscience, I was working with fish <laughs> and, um, and scans of people's brains that I've never met. Um, uh, but it was that project and, and those interactions that got me interested in social work. It was really my own experiences in therapy that really drew me to being a therapist. Um, I, I found that I was able to really have a lot of capacity for, for holding space for people. Um, and then I, I uh, took a leap and, and joined a, a therapy group in the local Austin area and found I really really like this and I'm I'm not too bad at it either <laughs> um, so yeah that's that's really what what solidified it for me gotcha okay well tell us a little bit about yourself uh, where where to begin Noah <laughs> <laughs> um well during the pandemic um I, I'll be I'll be a vulnerable right here with you today during the pandemic, it's been really hard uh, to be myself. Uh, you know, the things that I, I used to do um, before, um, before all this, uh, I, I'd love to go dancing. I'd love to go hanging out with my friends, um, going hiking with them, uh, going to restaurants, um, playing outside, really, being kind of a kid at heart. Um, but... Lately, I've been really focusing on planting. I have, a, I have so many plants. I might have 50 at this point. Oh, wow. Um, yes. It, it, there, there's something just so wonderful about nurturing something to life. Um, it's, it's painful when they die. <laughs> it's very <laughs> um, And it happens way more often than my Instagram would lead people to believe. <laughs> Um, Most people's Instagrams would lead people to believe. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, behind every green leafy 
plant you see on Instagram, there is a dead one. And <laughs> but well, yeah, some, oh, it, it, yeah, some other things that I really love um, are my, my pets. Um, it's been really interesting during the pandemic. I've been working from home and um, my pets are very much a part of therapy. <laughs> um, they'll, they'll be star appearances, really, uh, or guests <laughs> To it, um, they might be found napping, um, and and even uh, needing some some cuddles during the session, um, which has been very uh, very welcomed by by almost all my clients. That's awesome. Uh, my dog makes guest appearances too, except she's usually wanting something and like my attention that I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it. It, I, that might really bring us to kind of my style of therapy, Noah, is how, how our pets um, or, or just how we interact with the needs of other people. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go, go right ahead. I don't want to jump too far ahead. I, I'm really excited about it, though. <laughs> okay. Um, what modalities do you draw upon in therapy? Primarily... I, I work with attachment theory. Um, other modalities that I use though, um, I use EMDR. I'm, I'm certified as an EMDR therapist, um, oh. uh, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, that might not have provided any more clarity <laughs> by me <laughs> saying what those letters mean, um, but it's, it's really, it's a trauma-based therapy. And so I, I, I really focus on attachment and trauma with folks. Cool. Okay. And a lot of folks have a lot of trauma. Absolutely. And a lot of unprocessed, untalked mm -hmm. about, and invalidated trauma. Yes. Trauma that, that they might see as not actually trauma. They might see that as a funny childhood story. Yes. I've come across that multiple times as well. So what drew you to using attachment as a framework? I would say that my clients drew it out of me, actually. Um, it, it wasn't so much that I was drawn to it, but that they, they needed it. Um, I, I don't, sometimes uh, therapists might uh, refer to the universal referral system. Um, which some people just talk about as the world and people being drawn to you through some unconscious or subconscious um, connection uh, that they might see in you. Uh, they might see me as a safe attachment figure for them. And so really my clients just repeatedly would talk about early childhood and how it's affecting their current relationships and their current happiness and motivation. And so um, I, I found myself jumping into the literature, jumping into those trainings, um, and, and it's, it's really guided me to where I am today with my work. Very cool. Okay. So what would you say are the main principles of attachment theory? <sighs> to put it shortly, uh, to, put it, to, to really <laughs> simplify it, Attachment theory is a, a way of understanding 
humans. Um, and, and the theory is that the repeated interactions with our early life caregivers, that could be parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, uh, babysitters, whomever, that those repeated interactions develop our understanding and working model about how we see ourselves in the world. And so when we take attachment theory and put it into therapy, what I like to explore with people is um, security. Uh, attachment theory really posits itself that if you, as a, as a child, get repeated interactions with caregivers that are, are really attuned to you, meaning they, they understand you, they accept you, they love you, they give you affirmation, that those repeated attunements lead to security, lead to ability to take risks, to bounce back from missteps, to create, to walk into the world with confidence and resilience. And not everyone gets that. Right. And so, yeah, that when, when we bring it into, th into the therapy room, um, I try to be that secure attachment figure for folks. Um, and that, that's how, that, that's, that's really kind of the, the basis of my work. Gotcha, okay. How does our attachment style develop and when is it most critical, and when is the most critical time in this development? It, um, that's a hard question. <laughs> 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 because uh, attachment theory, it has a lot of science behind it, and it is a theory. Right. Um, and so I, I want to give everyone listening, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this invitation to listen to this with a grain of salt. You don't have to believe every single thing that I'm saying. I'm not saying that this is law. I'm not saying this has happened to every single person. But attachment style the most important time that it develops in our lives is early childhood, like prenatal, meaning before birth, to maybe like five or six. Those are, those are the incredibly foundational years that everything else is going to build, be built on. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily that your attachment style is permanent. If I believed that it was, I wouldn't be doing therapy with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would be futile. Um, and so, um, you know, some of the ways that attachment is, that your style is adaptive is that over time, you can have those repeated interactions with important people in your life to create a sense of safety. Uh, how difficult that is, is really dependent on those first few years, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. What impact can trauma have on the development of our attachment styles? Oh, it, it can have the biggest impact. Maybe it, 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 might, feel imp it might feel helpful to, to say what trauma could be, too. Right. So when, we, when we're talking about trauma, 
there, there's some ideas out there that there are big T traumas, um, like car accidents, um, assaults, violence, um, uh, explosions, things that are things that are very big and shocking. And then there are these small T traumas. Small T traumas could be those like, yeah, there's like relational traumas that happen throughout adolescence where um, something happens and, and it, it affects you so significantly that it, that it changes how you interact with the world, but it does it over a period of time. Does that make sense? Totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, and so looking at trauma um, regarding development of attachment style, you know, when you're a child, when when you're an infant, a baby, you cannot do anything on your own. (laughs) You can't get any need met whatsoever on your own. Um, You you need comfort, you need um, uh, food, you need uh, shelter, you need warmth. All those things uh, have to be provided by your caregivers. And trauma could be any of those things not being there when uh, it, during this really d- important developmental time. And so if, for those who are malnourished, for those whose caregivers um, have a, a complicated, ineffective relationship with substances, um, and, and for those, uh, those children with pretty significant disruptions in their feelings of safety with a caregiver, such as if a caregiver uh, leaves unexpectedly or is taken unexpectedly, um, that, that can make the, that, that baby, that, that child, have a deep understanding that the world is not safe and that they cannot depend on other people. That can have that, that can be pretty hard yeah, uh, for, for someone. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine though that you that you see people um, who who go through this as well. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, and and so trauma has a huge impact on our on our attachment styles, especially when that trauma is focused around our caregivers or, or just important adult people in our lives. What are some of the different types of attachment styles? You might get 300 answers from 300 different. I know. This is about you, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so as adults, there are really four different types. There's the secure. That's the one that I was talking about where repeated interactions with people leave you feeling safe, uh, grounded, centered, that, that's the nice one. That's the one that, that's easier to work with. Um, and then there are, um, there, there's the insecure attachment styles. Um, one is called the avoidant attachment style. And that's one where there's a belief that that person that, so let's say that I have avoidant attachment style. That, that means that I believe that um, I am okay but that other people cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And then there's the anxious attachment style uh, as an adult, where there's this belief, and let's say that I have this anxious attachment style, that 
I am not okay, I can only be okay through other people. Um, and, and then there's another one, it's called disorganized attachment style. This is primarily, you'll, you'll see disorganized attachment styles in adults from um, significant trauma in their childhoods. Uh, these are folks who, who have a really unstable relationship with attachment to others and to themselves. They're, they're, you, you can't really depend on anything um, when, when in a disorganized attachment style. Um, and so those are the four that I work with. Uh, those are the four that I, uh, uh, as a therapist, uh, primarily work with. It, some, some find it interesting. I, I currently don't work with children or adolescents. I, I primarily work with um, uh, millennial and uh, Gen X um, folks. Um, and uh, it, it, to, to help that attachment style adjust. Uh, and so those are the main attachment styles that people see. Now, it's interesting because some people have different attachment styles in different domains, meaning like work, they could be anxious, but in romantic relationships, they could be avoidant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's also something that, that, that I work with too, um, is exploring the, the mixed types as well. Okay. How might each of the attachment styles present in relationships with others as an adult? I guess more specifically here, like romantic relationships, adult relationships. Uh, amazing question. This is the this is the um, the bread and butter. Right. Right. Of of my work, I I really focus on relationships, and and so. Each attachment style, the, a secure attachment style will show up in someone being, um, feeling safe with their partner, feeling like their partner can do anything that their partner wants to do and that that partner will come back to that person. There's, a, there's an assumed safety that eventually you will come back together, um, connect and, and, and be, um, be intimate and vulnerable with each other. The avoidant, the uh, anxious, and the disorganized attachments look extremely differently. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the anxious attachment in romantic relationships can look like uh, your partner hasn't texted you in two hours, and you get extremely worried. You start thinking they're cheating on you. You start thinking they've left you already. They've uh, they've started a new life somewhere. They're sick of you. Um, and 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 they this person with an anxious attachment style will will spin their wheels and will do anything and everything possible to get that person back. Um, and and that can be really difficult for their partner. Their partner can, could be just busy. They could be just watching a movie or right. their phone is in the other room. Um, and, and so a, a, a partner uh, to someone with an attachment style that's anxious, that partner could feel um, smothered. 
they could feel like uh, the anxious attachment style is too much or too clingy or too needy. And what ends up happening is... They drive them away. Yes. And that confirms both people's ideas. Right. So they're almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, Noah. I have people who come into my office who say, every relationship I get into fails at this exact point. I'm so needy. They tell me I'm too much. Um, this, that, or the other. And, and, and each relationship that they get into further solidifies that understanding of themselves. And then they don't, they don't, they're not able to be vulnerable or connected with people, which sucks. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. And, and then we, we can take the avoidant attachment style too. So the avoidant attachment style is one where, in, as an adult, you don't lean on your partner very much. You don't give very much to your partner um, in, in terms of vulnerability, authenticity, connection. You give them enough um, at times, but, but overall, it's, it's definitely a deficit uh, of what that partner would want in an intimate, close, romantic, and or sexual relationship. And so um, the avoidant attachment style person is thinking in their mind, um, I'm doing great. I don't really need much from this person. They don't need much from me. But then when that other person starts showing needs and showing that they want a deeper connection, the person with the avoidant attachment style says, whoa, this is way too much. You're too needy. You, you need to do this work on your own. You're codependent. You'll hear from, from an avoidant attachment style. Um, and, and then that results in that person feeling <laughs> uh, invalidated, feeling right. really far away, not feeling in the relationship. And so then that person leaves. And, and then once again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And, and so um, in, in therapy with both of these types of attachment styles, what my goal is is to create a secure place where we can notice those patterns happening. And instead of reenacting those patterns, trying something different and just seeing how it goes. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and more often than not, my clients find that, wow, that, that really helped me expand. That helped me grow. Um, I didn't love every part of it, but, <laughs> but it helped <laughs> be different. I'm able to be in the relationship in a different way. Um, and it, it, it breaks up that cycle a bit. How about an individual who's disorganized? What does that look like in relationships? I don't know if you heard that big deep breath. <laughs> yeah, I it. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> Someone with a disorganized attachment will need consistency. This is a, a person with disorganized attachment could could uh, be experienced in a relationship as crazy that that could be a term that uh, their partner might use like whoa we were just hanging out and then all of a sudden I said something and 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 now you're walking out all I said was we should get dinner because right. uh, the person with a disorganized attachment there, there isn't as much stability in their responses and their trust of themselves and others 
And so these are folks who, who have a really hard time pinning down really most relationships. And that, that can include romantic, that definitely includes workplace um, and uh, community. Uh, all, all of that would be affected by someone with a disorganized attachment. Um, and and it's, it's really unfortunate um, that that is the population that really needs the most consistency and they need the most a connection in order to heal. Um, it's a, it's a hard place to be in, but it's one where a lot of my clients are, and I like to meet them exactly where they're at every session. I don't know what I'm getting with, uh, with them when they come in. Mm-hmm. I just know I'm going to go with them wherever they go. Would you say that somebody with a disorganized attachment style is more prone to things like self-harm and aggression? I, I would say that self-harm and aggression, you, you might see more often, more of those folks have a disorganized attachment, but I wouldn't necessarily say that those with disorganized attachment would most likely um, engage in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah. And, and so those, those with really diff, like hugely difficult times regulating themselves in any way, um, right. uh, that, that, that it doesn't include self-harm. Um, uh, yeah, de- definitely um, uh, experience disorganized attachment. Um, you, you also might see a lot of um, ineffective relationships with substance use, mm-hmm. um, with disorganized attachment. Yeah, a, a disorganized attachment can be one that needs to be numbed. Mm-hmm. It needs to be like really subdued for the person just to engage with others in a way um, that, that gets them something of what they need. Maybe not everything, but something. And, and so I, I also find that with uh, those with uh, with the difficult relationships with substance use. That makes sense. Um, do you think attachment plays a role in the types of romantic partners that we choose? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have a question. Oh, go right ahead. Uh, I said I thought you might like that question. <laughs> I love that question, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> One day, I swear, I will do a... A, a class on this of uh, <laughs> how to uh, not pick who you've been picking might be the title of it. So it, it, it might be surprising to hear this, um, but it, it, it might not that about 50% of adults out there are securely attached. And uh, as a psychotherapist, most of the people that I encounter really don't fit in that, that, that label. Um, and, and so secure folks look for secure folks, right? Uh, a secure person is going to see, or, or if, if they engage with someone who's avoidant or anxious, they're going to be like, I don't like this. I'm going to get my need met elsewhere. This isn't working for me. We need to end this. I'm comfortable ending this relationship so that I can pursue something that is meaningful. Avoidance will will pursue anxious attachments and anxious attachments pursue avoidance because there's this, <laughs> there, there's this awful cycle that happens, Noah, where those who fear that their needs are too much 
that they might be too clingy or too needy. That's the avoidant, or that's the anxious attachment, folks. Um, they will go after the people who dismiss them, who avoid them. Because that's how they know how to interact. They know how to interact with someone who doesn't think that their own needs are important. Uh, and, and so the anxious will go, uh, will pursue avoidant partners constantly. And, and the same thing goes for avoidance. Avoidance deep down really don't want to avoid. They really do want on a very deep level to connect vulnerably and to connect um, authentically and, and deeply. So they see the, the anxious attachment style. They see, oh, this is a person who has needs and wants. Like, those are the cool things in a relationship that I don't really have that I might want. And then they, then they both get in the cycle again, where the avoidant pushes further away from the anxious, and the anxious pushes even harder and becomes more needy um, towards the avoidant. Uh, and, and, and typically, that's just a cycle until you find someone that's more secure, that helps you move towards security. Um, you know, some people, it, 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 one of the terrible misconceptions about um, this modality, or, or I, I guess about the folks that I work with, is that once you have an attachment style, that's it. That's it for the rest of your life. <laughs> and that is just so not true. Um, when we work with someone who's more secure than us, uh, when, when we connect with them, they help us move towards security. Um, and, and so um, for those out there who are listening and think, gosh, I just keep getting in these relationships and these guys or these girls or these people just keep telling me I'm too much, stop going after them. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not enough. <laughs> they won't be true. Is that your clinical recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for my clinical recommendation, um, my clinical recommendation is to counseling. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But really, um, yeah, my, my, the, the real clinical recommendation is try something different. Mm -hmm. Jump in, notice a pattern that you're in, try something different. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be um, potentially really sad. And so you, you'll need support as you try these new things, as you try these new patterns of relating to people. Um, otherwise, you'll get burnt out. And so that, that, that's really my, my therapy in a nutshell, I guess. That, that's the clinical recommendation I, I have. Okay. Um, so I know you mentioned, you know, attachment, working from an attachment perspective helps with trauma. Is there any other uses for it clinically? Um, certainly, ab ab absolutely. Sometimes <clears throat> folks will come to me wanting to work on motivation. Um, and no, like when you hear that, like what, do you, what comes up for you? Um, like when you hear someone say motivation, I wanna work on my motivation. Oh gosh, uh, a whole screen with like white typecast font like DOS comes up in my head. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think about, you know, depression. I think about anxiety. Um, 
you know, I think about their relationship with themselves, um, you know, yes. their relationship with others. Yes. Attachment is not just about our relationship with other people. It's about how we connect to ourselves. And, and when I, when someone comes in for motivation, sometimes they want a quick fix. Sometimes they want tips and tricks on how to do the work that they've been procrastinating to do. And what I really explore with them is what are you working for? Like, like truly, is it, is it just to pay the bills? Is it so that you can enjoy connection with other people while you uh, go on picnics or travel or go to restaurants or see new movies, experience new things? Um, and, and so attachment, it certainly is not just for trauma. It, it, it can be for a whole host of other things. Whenever there's a block that a person feels for themselves in their, in their world, I, I tend to think that there's something going on with how they relate their worthiness to the world. Does right. that make Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, I know you had mentioned one common misconception is that people think, you know, their attachment style, attachment style is set, uh, when in reality that's not true. Uh, are there any other common misconceptions you think are noteworthy about attachment and trauma? Oh, well, uh, about a trauma, definitely. Um, I, there's, there's a whole other podcast, I think, that we can Oh, do. yeah, no, for sure. Misconceptions <laughs> about trauma. Um, you know, the, the things that, that really stand out for me are the, that attachment styles are a misconception is that they're permanent. They're just not. But then another um, misconception is that people who go through trauma, um, that one trauma will affect everyone equally. So uh, an example of that uh, would be 9-11. 9-11 affected everyone differently based on <laughs> a whole host of characteristics. Um, some people who, uh, who were really close to uh, some of the, the, the sites where there was violence and, and terrorism um, adapted fine. They went, they went fine into the world. Other people had an extremely difficult time. And so uh, trauma does not look the same on every single person. One thing could be traumatic for one person and not for another. Right. And, and a, a, a really a, a disservice that some people get in, uh, when, when talking about trauma is that um, they're told, well, you were fine. There, nothing bad happened. You just mm -hmm. saw something bad happen. Um, and, and it invalidates their experience. Um, and, and so that, that's, a, that's a common misconception. Another one regarding attachment is that we're just going to um, crap talk your parents. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. it's all their fault. <laughs> okay. And, and the thing is, that's, that's not the case. That, that's not what I, I do with, with my clients. Um, your parents or, or your caregivers did as best as they could. Uh, we're not going to spend, a, a, we're not gonna spend sessions upon sessions talking about how terrible they did. We are going to talk about how you are in the world. 
and how that could be connected to some of those early life experiences, including trauma, including misattunement. Um, and, and in no way are, is it my goal for you to not like your parents. <laughs> that, that is, I, I do get that once in a while. Um, uh, that someone will say, well, it feels like we're, we're being really mean to my parents. And I'd say, well, no one's perfect and you were affected by them. We get to talk about that. Yeah, okay. Uh, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Personal experience um, with, uh, with these populations include um, friendships, um, being involved in community uh, organizations with those, um, helping those at helping advocate for those in these in some of these populations um i i would say that the most important experience noah is is personal exploration into how i can show up for these folks right. and i say these folks i mean i'm meaning any vulnerable um, or marginalized um uh, identity or, or population um, specifically i i really I, I really enjoy working with um, uh, gender exploration, gender identity work. Um, I, I also love making space for anyone who um, doesn't identify as cisgender and, and making, uh, making a safe environment for them to just process and to talk about stuff. Um, Regarding uh, BIPOC, those, those who are black, indigenous, um, and, and, and or uh, people of color, um, I, I do consistent anti-racism work. Um, I, I've been doing, I've been part of an anti-racism group, um, a consultation group, um, discussing our, my own blind spots uh, and supporting um, other clinicians identify their blind spots as well. Um, for, for years now. Um, and I also explore what it means for me to be a white cisgendered man um, showing up in the therapy room and taking these clients' money. Um, it is, it, it's, it's not something that I, I take for granted and it's not something that isn't spoken about um, with my clients. I make, it, uh, I make it, I invite that conversation and I also don't pepper them with <laughs> questions about it. If someone is transgender in my office, um, maybe they're not there for being transgender. They're there because of their relationship issues. I'm not going to focus um, on something that they don't want to focus on. Um, right. Yeah. I'm really and, glad to hear all those things, Adam. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I still, of course, have a long way to go to, to continue this, this anti-racism um, work and, and to make therapy spaces and just this world more inclusive and accepting. Um, but I, I look forward to the challenge. It's going to be lifelong, even after I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, I think it's lifelong for all of us. Um, how are your sessions structured, if any? You know, <laughs> um, I, I'd like to say that I have an idea <laughs> of what's going to happen. <laughs> um, 
you know, the, the only structure that really comes up for me is that you show up on time. And if you don't show up on time, we talk about it. Um, and, and then from there, I just say, how are you doing? And we just kind of go from there. Um, the, that's, that's like the majority of my work. But then on the, on the flip side of that, when I do EMDR, that trauma therapy, it is extremely structured. <laughs> there are very specific ways of going through that modality and through that therapy um, that don't really allow for a lot of um, improvisation. Um, so those are the only structured parts of my sessions, I would say. Um, I, I really enjoy having the unstructured um, part of it. Unless a client asks for structure. I, I do enjoy that as well, yeah. And, and when that happens, it, it's a collaborative process. So we figure out what works for both of us. So it sounds like you're generally non-directive unless you're either asked to be more directive or if doing EMDR. Yes, absolutely. And, and I don't just jump into their request right away for more directive therapy. I explore it in a non-directive approach first. <laughs> and, and then we, we jump into the direction, the directive nature of it. Um, you know, a lot of times people will come in and they'll want to work on a specific thing. Uh, we'll explore it for a little bit and they'll identify that that's not really why they came in. Mm -hmm. So for me, jumping into directive work, um, it, it just hasn't worked with my clients and my, and my style. Yeah, I'm not directive either. I like dealing with what comes up in the room in the moment. Right? It's, it's just so much richer. Yeah. I, would, I will say that those with disorganized attachment, it's really hard to not have structure. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it, is, it can actually be really dysregulating um, to, to just be in the room, in the present, um, and, and to, to notice what's coming up right now. And so for some of those with disorganized attachments, it, there, there can't be some direction um, that, that we jump into, um, but it, it, it changes by session <laughs> because uh, these are folks with disorganized attachment. Uh, yeah. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? They could expect uh, an invitation for them to just talk. Uh, really, uh, and that, that, that's, where, that's where we'll start. And that if that's not where they want to start, if they're not ready to just talk freely yet, that I've got a, I got a million questions <laughs> doing this work. I've collected quite a lot of different questions that I can ask in, those first, uh, in, a, in that first session. Um, I, I will say, Noah, that uh, th at some point within that first session, we do look at their relationships. Talk about what's going on for you now, who's there to support you, who's been there in the past for you, how's that worked? But, but really, that initial session, um, it, it, is, it is quite non-directive. Okay. What about sessions on an ongoing basis? What could clients expect from you there? They could expect me to 
kind of knit together a tapestry of what they're telling me. Mm-hmm. Like to say that I, I bring in things that they've said months ago that they may have forgotten about um, to the, the situation that's happening right now and to notice those patterns that are going on. I, that, that ongoing work is really about developing an understanding of how this person interacts with the world. And one way that we do that is through our own relationship, the one between the client and me. And, and, and we'll talk about how our own relationship changes throughout um, our work together. And we'll talk about how that may be um, different from their experience as a kid or very similar. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Hmm. I think they would describe me as warm, uh, comedic, um, gentle, but also challenging at times. A soft challenge, I think, is how they would describe me. Okay. And how would you define holding space for someone? Mm. This is a great question, Noah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Holding space is giving someone else the microphone and not thinking about your response, Not, not thinking about what to say next, not trying to fix or maneuver or control or um, adjust, um, have any influence on the person's experience, to just let that person be. Um, It's a great definition. Oh, thank you. I should write that down. (laughs) (laughs) What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Always charge the late fees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and I, I can say a little bit more too about that. I hate having to do it, but I know mm-hmm. it's the worst. Oh, it breaks my heart every time. I know. <laughs> and, and I've been there too. You know, it, it's wild. Um, you know, uh, doing this work, uh, some therapists. Uh, you know, do their own therapy or, or get consultation or, or talk with other therapists in a professional um, way uh, that requires payment uh, one way or another. And, and if someone cancels late um, or um, doesn't show up, um, I've had to pay, you know, uh, or um, like if, if I've canceled late or if I haven't shown up, I've had to pay. And when I do that, it, it's almost calming for me because it's, uh, there's a, a worry that I get that the other person is going to be um, frustrated with me or that the relationship is going to be damaged. And, and charging that late fee is actually a really nice way of holding the boundaries of the relationship to show someone I am secure. You can come to me and I will support you, but you will also not be able to manipulate. No one can. I am strong here. It doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> no, no. I, I hate it, and I let my clients know I hate it. So I hope that encourages them not to do it. 
Yes, exactly. Because it affects the relationship, right? Right. It affects how, how each of us show up in the room. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that, yeah. So I, I would say that that's probably the best advice I've ever received. Good advice. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Healing isn't about doing. It's about being. Mm-hmm. Um, we are all intrinsically good people. I truly believe that there's good in every human and that we all want connection and warmth and love. Um, And that if that isn't coming up for folks, um, it's because there's something in the way. And uh, by making space, allowing that person to just be, we're going to get to the the center of, of whatever's holding them back from that love and connection. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you do, Adam, to take care of yourself? Oof, I get a lot of massages. <laughs> <laughs> I got one earlier today, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, oh, massages are so important. Um, I, I hold a lot of stress in my back and my neck, and especially during the pandemic when we're doing everything on the computer and your neck is like not moving much at all. Um, <laughs> taking care of myself is it, movement through massage or just walking, um, connecting with nature, uh, just putting my feet to earth. Those are really important ways that I take care of myself. Other, other things that I've done in the past before the pandemic hit, travel um, and, and meet new people. I also... Um, I, I, I'm also a, a client myself. That's one way that I take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. How would you define happiness? Probably not very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's so hard. You know, I've, I've never really... I think... Throughout some of my work, you know, I've noticed that happiness is just a fleeting moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that to define happiness is to include sadness. Um, that, that, that we have to have that reference point or else, or else we, we can't really know what happiness is. But, and, and so I, I, say, I would say that the closest thing to happiness of a uh, definition that I can come up with is connection to self and the world really grounded center going back to attachment (laughs) yes exactly okay here's a vulnerable question what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date I know showed a client whoops Oops. (laughs) Oops. <laughs> uh, totally scheduled it. Um, and then a week later, um, uh, when it happened, I, I, I see, I looked down at my phone and there's a voicemail. I remembered right away. Oh, dang it. So that would definitely be the most embarrassing moment I had. 
I offered that person a free session, I will say. <laughs> that's, that's nice. I think that's, you know, respectful and, um, you know, makes sense to do. Yeah. The worst I've done is I, I double booked myself once and had to sort through that, but everybody was really understanding, so it worked out. That's great. I, I've done that too. Uh, it, that, that just didn't surpass the embarrassment I felt by no showing. <laughs> so there's probably a lot more. <laughs> <Two. laughs> well, Adam, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Mm. Something that I, I, I don't think I've actually mentioned today, I identify as a gay man myself. Um, and, and I feel like that's really important for, for folks to, to know uh, mm -hmm. who, who want to de do some deep work with me. Um, and, and so that, that's a really, that's a, that's an important thing I think to bring, um, you know, for potential clients, um, if you've listened to this or, um, or, or if you've been listening to this and you think someone else might resonate with me, all you have to do is reach out and, and we'll see what, what we can do. Okay. And Adam, what is your website? It's really easy. It's adamtherapy.com. That is easy. <laughs> <laughs> My last name is MacDonald, and it's spelled a million different ways by a million different people. So um, I thought, let's keep it easy. Just Adam Therapy. Very smart. Um, well, Adam, I appreciate you being on the show and being vulnerable on here. Um, Thank you so much, Noah, for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that if somebody wants to work with somebody from an attachment perspective, who I will refer them to. So, so I appreciate name on hand. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the show today. We will have a new episode next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today and hope you did too. Join us for our episode next week featuring Dr. Joe Eckler on their specialty, Chronic and Invisible Illness. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. Next Quest Podcasts, brought to you by Next Quest Counseling, relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Next Quest Podcast, 
or making a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.